Hi, I'm Ursula Wake. And I'm John Atak, and this is Lyrical Wax. And today we're going to read some poems that we grew up with and that mm. um, probably profoundly influenced us. They certainly profoundly influenced me. Yeah, yeah, they're kind of poems that are sort of part of us, yeah. aren't they? Yes. Yes, most of them. So, um, I'm going to start off with, um, I've read something in another episode from this um from this anthology, and it, this is actually the the copy that I, I that I had. It's it's all kind of covered. My dad did these things. It's been beautiful, yeah, sort of beautifully covered so that it's existed and been in absolutely really good condition despite all my reading since mid sixties. So um, a long time. So this poem is. Um, it's a simple, this was the first one that I thought, when I thought poems from my childhood, this is typically the first one that comes to mind. It's by um, an obscure um, poet, not obscure to himself and everybody he treasures, His family I'm sure. Knew him. Um, <laughs> John Buxton, um, but he's just not one of the classics. Um, but this poem's called Squirrel. I saw a squirrel run through the wood by every tree it stopped and stood, ready to climb with its paws on the trunk. And every time, for no danger came, it hurried on and was gone. And I love that. It, it just says squirrel all the way through. Squirrel. Noticing mm. a squirrel. That's what it's like. They're amazing creatures. I remember mm. sitting and watching one run up a, a fence just... <laughs> Just yeah. run up a, a vertical fence. Incredible things. Um, when I was a child, we, we had a copy of this book in the house. And I've been pestering my brother, Andrew, for years to try and um, borrow the copy. But he holds on to it because he actually, all these years later, um, still keeps it by his bedside just in case, you know. So just, just he, he very kindly actually sent me a, a copy of the frontispiece, the contents and the poem I'm going to read, The Crocodile. Along the way, I very fortunately found a copy online. So mm. the book is called Who's Who in the Zoo? Uh, this is the first edition from 1933, wow. um, written by J.B. Morton, and who was apparently quite famous he, uh, in the 1930s. And you can buy the bumper Beachcomber. He was a cat, called himself Beachcomber and wrote... Um, oh, right funny pieces for the newspapers for many years so thank you to a books yes for a, coming up with the, a books because we've looked everywhere for a copy of this but a books came hmm. up with it and Wonderful they people. they hold <laughs> listings from many different mm. booksellers and it's a way of avoiding amazon which is <laughs> you know might be a good idea who knows mm. uh, beautifully illustrated by uh, cecil alden and um so I don't know. They're just they're really handsome line drawings of, of animals all the way through. So this was very definitely a part of, of my childhood, and it's still a part of my brother Andrew's childhood. Uh, so this is The Crocodile by J.B. Morton. Far, far away by Cleopatra's Nile, snug in a swamp or lolling in the mud, lies that disgraceful beast, the crocodile, chewing his own particular kind of cud. 
Weep no more, my foolish fair one. Travellers may come and go. There will always be a spare one. Up and catch him by the toe. Repulsive brute. The tourists often think romance has brought these tears into your eyes. But when they slip upon the river's brink, they're fairly certain of a sharp surprise. Weep no more, O oh fond and foolish. Lightly come and lightly go. It's your nature to be ghoulish. Up and grab em by the toe. I love that, that line, his own peculiar kind of pud. Yes. <laughs> Something quite... Um... Which is your foot, basically. <laughs> A little bit repulsive. Repulsive brute. Yeah. Um, so this next one that I'm going to read is one we've both chosen, one by A.A. A. Milne. Um, there's so many that we could that I could have chosen. I think you were sort of spoiled for choice as I, well. I got down to three and and oh, stuck yeah. a pin in. Yeah, um, and I've chosen one to that gives perhaps a that is quite different from the one that John's going to read. Um, so one of the things I like about this is it's an example of A. A. Milne's fantastic ability to understand what it's like to be a child, remember what it's like to be a child, understand that and how different it is from being an adult, that child's world, and then express it fantastically. Um, it's called Missing. It also has fantastic word, waffly, waffly nose, a completely child's word, but we all know exactly what it means. Um, so yeah, this child, just want to say another thing before I read it. Because this thing about the child's world that I love is he the way that a child has no understanding of how an adult might perceive something. It's just they're completely in their own little world. Um, and so this child has lost a mouse. Missing. Has anybody seen my mouse? I opened his box for half a minute just to make sure he was really in it. And while I was looking, he jumped outside. I tried to catch him. I tried, I tried. I think he's somewhere about the house. Has anyone seen my mouse? Uncle John, have you seen my mouse? Just a small sort of mouse, a dear little brown one. He came from the country, he wasn't a town one, so he'll feel all lonely in a London street. Well, what could he possibly find to eat? He must be somewhere. I'll ask Aunt Rose. Have you seen a mouse with a waffly nose? Oh, somewhere about. He just got out. Hasn't anybody seen my mouse? That's a lovely addition. It, it, it's, uh, it's been coloured and the original, uh, the shepherd drawings are phenomenal. Oh. I, I'm, yes. I detest the Walt Disney. I'm sorry to say, I, I just love, you know, I grew up with these wonderful drawings, but my yeah. my editions are just in uh, in black and white, so I'm very jealous now. Yeah, well, it's interesting, isn't it? Some people might say that things should not be, and I don't actually know whether they were done perhaps in colour as original things, but then produced in the books as black and I th white. I think they were line drawings originally, um, because um, yeah, but it's interesting, isn't it? Some people would really hate to see well, this shouldn't be in colour. Travesty. What's going on? Travesty. Yeah. But 
The, you know, we were saying, um, we've sometimes said that when we're talking about song lyrics and how they're not, you know, a lot of them, they're not that different from poetry, mm. it's exactly the same. And then um, you also mentioned something we heard Simon Armitage say, which was that you can't think of song lyrics without the music, mm. whereas poems you can think of separately. But one thing that's um, gone through my mind a few times is with a lot of A.A. A. Milne poems, how many people who are really familiar with them can remember the poem without thinking of the drawings mm. because they're just so much part apart from the disneyfication yeah enough said um but ernest shepherd's drawings are mm. just so familiar to so many people and both um, shepherd and milne were very celebrated people before mm. these books came out uh, shepherd illustrated punch magazine mm. which was a massively um, famous and well-sold magazine and Alan Milne was the editor of Punch. He was also known for various for his plays. Uh, the Red House is still mm. performed but you know now he's known for this. Shepherd was also very careful to go to the locations um, and make his drawings there though I question some of the drawings of, of Christopher Robin himself. Um, Christopher Robin wrote a book called The Enchanted Places about yeah, his childhood. Yeah, that's a whole different story. And isn't it? he it's basically kind of... puts over the point of view that, that his father really didn't know what to do with children other than to write poems for him. So that, that That's quite interesting, given That the he end seemed result. to have such a penetrating mm. view of childhood. But mm. um, he was particularly annoyed about um, his, his father suggesting him mending his railway set with a bit of string because in fact he rewired the house, in fact he wired the house when he was 12 years old and he was you know, mechanically very adept and he didn't like that and was never called Christopher Robin as the books themselves say, he was called Billy Moon. That's he called name. himself Billy Moon. And in the books he talks of Billy, the, yeah, dedicated, one of them is dedicated at the beginning to Billy Moon. Yeah, and yeah. He, that was how he described himself, but I think the, um, his official name. We might, but I think we've. Was Christopher, gone on. No, he's Christopher Robin Milne. That was his name. Yeah. It's on his, on his birth yeah. certificate. But, but he didn't he, think he didn't like to be identified with the character in the books. Yeah. And he felt a little bit annoyed that his father had, mm. had done this thing, and yeah. that he's dressed in a little frock in the, in the drawings. Mm. But children were back in the mm. teens and early twenties of the century when these things were written. I was profoundly influenced by A. Milne. I have mm. to say because. I, you know, these, my mother would read these poems to me before, you know, in times before I can remember. Yeah. yeah. And so I grew up with, with this and with the terror inflicted upon me by Beatrix Potter in Roly Poly and uh, Mr. Todd and t the terrible Squirrel Nutkin, you know. But again, mm. beautifully illustrated, beautifully written piece mm. of work. And they're just, I just, that was the sea that I swam in. That was... I didn't mm -hmm. think about this being separate. So this is um, one of my favourites, and it's called King John's Christmas. I'm going to have to watch out for the rustling of papers as I do this. So I'll try to be as non-rustly as possible. Yeah. King John's Christmas by A.N. Milne. King John was not a good man. He had his little ways. And sometimes no one spoke to him for days and days and days. The men who came across him when walking in the town gave him a supercilious stare or passed with noses in the air. And bad King John stood dumbly there, blushing beneath his crown.
King John was not a good man, and no good friends had he. He stayed in every afternoon, but no one came to tea. And round about December, the cards upon his shelf, which wished him lots of Christmas cheer and fortune in the coming year, were never from his near and dear, but only from himself. King John was not a good man, yet had his hopes and fears. They'd given him no present now for years and years and years. But every year at Christmas, while minstrels stood about, collecting tribute from the young for all the songs they might have sung, he stole away upstairs and hung a hopeful stocking out. King John was not a good man. He lived his life aloof. Alone he thought a message out while climbing up the roof. He wrote it down and propped it against the chimney stack. To all and sundry, near and far, F. Christmas in particular. And signed it not Johannes R., but very humbly, Jack. I want some crackers and I want some candy. I think a box of chocolates would come in handy. I don't mind oranges. I do like nuts. And I should like a pocket knife that really cuts, and oh, Father Christmas, if you love me at all, bring me a big red India rubber ball. King John was not a good man. He wrote this message out, and gat him to his room again, descending by the spout, and all that night he lay there, a prey to hopes and fears. I think that's him a-coming now. Anxiety bedewed his brow. He'll bring one present anyhow, the first I've had for years. Forget about the crackers and forget about the candy. I'm sure a box of chocolates would never come in handy. I don't like oranges. I don't want nuts. And I have got a pocket knife that almost cuts. But oh, Father Christmas, if you love me at all, bring me a big red India rubber ball. King John was not a good man. Next morning when the sun rose up to tell a waiting world that Christmas had begun and people seized their stockings and opened them with glee and crackers, toys and games appeared and lips with sticky sweets were smeared. King John said grimly, as I feared, nothing again for me. I did want crackers and I did want candy. I know a box of chocolates would come in handy. I do love oranges. I did want nuts. I haven't got a pocket knife, not one that cuts. And oh, if Father Christmas had loved me at all, he would have brought a big red India rubber ball. King John stood by the window and frowned to see below the happy bands of boys and girls all playing in the snow. A while he stood there watching and envying them all, when through the window, big and red, there hurtled by his royal head and bounced and fell upon the bed an India rubber ball. And oh, Father Christmas, my blessings on you fall for bringing him a big red India rubber ball. <laughs> Marvellous. Um, this next one that um, I'm going to read is the words of a hymn. And hymns were um, a big part of my childhood. In fact, it's, we've, we're both going to be reading out words of a hymn. Um, so I grew up in a household that was really not musical at all. And very wordy, very booky, um, 
no music apart from so TV theme tunes and radio program theme tunes with the music that I heard plus hymns um, so both because we went to church and then also because um, both of us went to school at the time when they did um, Christian assemblies at school so um, much si hymn singing happened um, and because I loved words um, and because these these songs sort of stood out to me so much, the words of hymns became sort of um, part of me as well. And this one, um, it's called There Is a Green Hill Far Away, um, 19th century, written by somebody called Francis Alexander. And um, so it's about Easter. But my memories of it are, I can, I can picture immediately me sitting in assembly in that classic cross-legged thing I can remember the cardigan that I had on and I remember daydreaming to this to this song every time I heard it the green hill far away was something never mind the rest of it although I did I did enjoy singing it but I just had this image of something really kind of exotic an exotic version of the peak district because um, we went out into, we went, that's right, <laughs> because we lived near, um, very close to the National Park, um, the Peak District, and um, went there a lot. And I think I sort of had this image that it was some sunny, exotic version of that. Um, but I, I just, it just is, is in me, it runs through my veins, this hymn somehow, because of that wonderful sort of ability to, to daydream during assemblies. There is a green hill far away without a city wall where the dear Lord was crucified who died to save us all. We may not know, we cannot tell what pains he had to bear but we believe it was for us he hung and suffered there. He died that we might be forgiven, he died to make us good that we might go at last to heaven saved by his precious blood. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin he only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. Oh, dearly, dearly has he loved, and we must love him too, and trust in his redeeming blood, and try his works to do. That was the accompaniment to much daydreaming and feeling I could be elsewhere other than school. <laughs> in the Peak District, watching Jesus be crucified. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I was introduced at school to the works of William Blake, and um, which were tremendously important to me. I think because his writing is very straightforward; um, it, it doesn't go off into the flourishes that um, the later Romantic poets did. He is at the beginning of the Romantic movement, mm. um, and there's something very sincere about his work. I find. Um, it's also worth saying he was a very odd human being. Um, the, um, he said he saw a vision of God as a child um, in an apple tree, I believe it was, and um, that sustained him. He, he was a friend of Thomas Paine, the, uh, who's was the, really a cause of both the American and the French revolutions. He mm. was involved in both, and his book, The Rights of Man, was tremendously important. Uh, it was very dangerous to be his friend uh, because uh, there was a warrant out for his execution, his arrest and execution. Mm. Um, but Blake was, 
his uh, Jerusalem is uh, the anthem of the Women's Institute in, in this country for many years, and mm -hmm. all jam makers know it. Uh, it was voted the most popular hymn. But what most people probably don't know about William Blake is that he wasn't a Christian. He actually wrote to say that he believed that um, Jesus came to expose Jehovah as the evil creator of the universe. So that you have this interesting idea that he wrote the most popular hymn, but he wasn't actually mm. a person who would have gone to an Anglican church at any point. Interesting. This poem, for me, still resonates. Uh, I was delighted as a child that he couldn't spell either. It's about the word tiger, T-Y-G-E-R, good for him. Mm. And there is, a, I think, a beautiful lyrical resonance to it. It's called The Tiger. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? In what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire. And what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? And when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet? What the hammer, what the chain, in what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil, what dread grasp, dare its deadly terrors clasp? When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile? his work to see, did he who made the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night, what immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? I like the idea that um, even God might have been scared of the tiger. Yeah. Yeah, particularly the Siberian tiger, by the way, which is bigger than the uh, the other ones, quite very very terrible beast. And there's also there's something about industry in there, and remembering that, that Blake is is writing at the end of the 18th century, and he's talking about the tiger being manufactured, you know, with a yeah, hammer, that and, hammer and anvil. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, another feline. Um, in the next poem, um, slightly different one. Um, so T.S. Eliot's cats become very well known through the musical, and dance, etc. Um, but um, I grew up way before the musical um, on Old Possum's book of practical cats. And um, for those who aren't familiar with the with the um, musical. I'm just going to go through some of the names of the cats because the names are fantastic. So the old Gumby cat, Growl Tiger, the Rum Tum Tugger, Song of the Jellicles, Mungo Jerry, Rumple Teaser, Old Deuteronomy, The Peaks and the Pollicles, Mr. Mistopheles, Macavity the Mystery Cat, Gus the Theatre Cat, Buster for Jones, The Cat About Town, Skimbleshanks, The Railway Cat. Just fantastic names and um, the one, so my dad used to read these to me a lot way before I could have, probably way before I could have read or would have read anything as long as this I guess. Um, and the one I always used to request most often was Macavity the Mystery Cat. Macavity is a mystery cat, he's called the Hidden Paw. 
for he's the master criminal who can defy the law. He's the bafflement of Scotland Yard, the flying squad's despair, for when they reach the scene of crime, McCavity's not there. McCavity, McCavity, there's no one like McCavity. He's broken every human law, he breaks the law of gravity. His powers of levitation would make a fakir stare, and when you reach the scene of crime, McCavity's not there. You may seek him in the basement, you may look up in the air, but I tell you once and once again, McCavity's not there. McCavity's a ginger cat, he's very tall and thin. You would know him if you saw him, for his eyes are sunken in. His brow is deeply lined with thought, his head is highly domed. His coat is dusty from neglect, his whiskers are uncombed. He sways his head from side to side with movements like a snake. And when you think he's half asleep, he's always wide awake. Macavity, Macavity, there's no one like Macavity. For he's a fiend in feline shape, a monster of depravity. You may meet him in a by-street, you may see him in the square. But when a crime's discovered, Macavity's not there. He's outwardly respectable. They say he cheats at cards. And his footprints are not found in any file of Scotland Yard's. And when the lard is looted, or the jewel case is rifled, or when the milk is missing, or another peak's been stifled, or the greenhouse glass is broken, and the trellis past repair. Ah, there's the wonder of the thing. McCavity's not there. And when the Foreign Office find a treaty's gone astray, or the Admiralty lose some plans and drawings by the way, there may be a scrap of paper in the hall or on the stair, but it's useless to investigate. McCavity's not there. And when the loss has been disclosed, the Secret Service say, it must have been McCavity, but he's a mile away. You'll be sure to find him resting or a licking of his thumbs or engaged in doing complicated long division sums. McCavity, McCavity, there's no one like McCavity. There never was a cat of such deceitfulness and suavity. He always has an alibi and one or two to spare. At whatever time the deed took place, McCavity wasn't there. And they say that all the cats whose wicked deeds are widely known, I might mention Mungo Jerry, I might mention Griddlebone, are nothing more than agents for the cat who all the time just controls their operations. The Napoleon of Crime. Napoleon of crime. And again, Simon Armitage's idea about um, you know, a rhymed poem, you were only going to think of it with the music. Well, what about mm. something like this, which was written first and then set to music? Or, or, Ages later, you know, yeah. yeah. And it, we have to say Thomas Stearns Eliot is one of the most famous poets in history who wrote mm. poetry which is considered to be profound and deep, the Wasteland, um, the Four Quartets. Um, the Hollow Man, mm. Ash Wednesday, these mm. wonderful poems. And he also loved cats. And mm. so you have this thing that, that he's writing this much lighter verse yeah. as, as part of his accomplishment. Uh, Absolutely. He, he... And it's, it's fantastic verse. It's so um, rhythmical and the rhymes are so good without any, any rubbish to make them rhyme. Mm. I think yeah. that's one of the things, when I was a kid, that's how I, um, what I noticed, I think, about these compared to some other 
um, poems that I was being introduced to at the time in school where I sort of felt, oh, yeah, it's kind of okay. It rhymes, it's poetry because it rhymes, but an awful lot of um, things that I felt were unnecessary. Yeah, the words have been forced into place. I mean, so, if, yeah. you know, as McGonagall shows us, you know, you can <laughs> do that very thoroughly. Mm. Okay, another uh, hymn. Uh, because I, I used to have the school assemblies and I'd, I'd go to church every Sunday, an Anglican church in the morning with my mum and my brothers and my dad. And um, I loved singing hymns. I thought it was great, mm. you know, a bunch mm. of people all singing this thing. I wasn't too sure what they meant, but mm. and I'm <laughs> even less sure now, I must say. But um, there, there was a hymn that stuck with me and it really did stick with me for the tune. Um, the tune was provided um, by uh, no less than Rafe Vaughan Williams, the great English composer, oh, right. who wrote music for the English hymnal in 1906. And I didn't know until many years later that, in fact, it's a traditional song called Our Captain Cried All Hands. It's a, it's a hornpipe, I believe. It's a, it's a sea song that is, uh, oh, you know, wow. the tune is it taken from. The tune I'm thinking of doesn't he feel, who would doesn't feel like a sea shanty at all. Disaster. Mm. Yeah. And that's what it is. The, the words originate in um, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And Pilgrim's Progress was the uh, second most printed book in the English language for more than a century, the first being the Bible. Bunyan, you know, it was the book that Puritans mm. read, you mm. know, to keep themselves away from sloth and, uh, you know, all of this kind of stuff. Um, I was surprised when researching this, because I just went and got it, and I, I didn't know it was Bunyan, to find that, in fact, it was very extensively rewritten uh, by a man called um, Ralph Dearman for the hymnal. So the version I'm going to read is the version I grew up with, which is from the English hymnal. And it's called, it's also sometimes known as He Who Would Valiant Be, but I know it under the title To Be a Pilgrim. He who would valiant be against all disaster, let him in constancy follow the master. There's no discouragement, shall make him once relent his first avowed intent to be a pilgrim. Whoso beset him round with dismal stories, do but themselves confound his strength the more is. No foes shall stay his might, though he with giants fight, he will make good his right to be a pilgrim. Since, Lord, thou dost defend us with thy spirit, we know we at the end shall life inherit. Then fancies flee away, I'll fear not what men say, I'll labour night and day to be a pilgrim. And, I, I mean, the the language, the way that mm. it trips through, it's so carefully constructed. Um, it also, of course, describes a fanatic, and that's worth <laughs> keeping in mind, possibly. <laughs> yeah. So, um, this poem um, by Christina Rosati, so it's a 19th century one, um, also became a hymn. This is the final hymn that we're going to be um, referring to in this. Um, and if any I, atheists would like to submit their hymns, we'll read them if they're good enough. Absolutely. I mean, neither neither John nor I are religious, but it's it's part 
this whole thing is things we grew up with and yeah. what, what's part of us. Yeah. Um, and this poem um, became a Christmas carol and is still sort of very often sung. I think it's absolutely stunning as a song. Um, I love the tune that it was set to. Um, but I loved the words. I Again, this is one of those where I've got immediate memories of being in church and singing this and just envisaging, again, the Peak District um, in the bleak midwinter. Which um, is, of course, where the whole Christian story played out <laughs> yeah, in the Peak District. Yeah, in we'll do that in another episode. I'll do an episode on <laughs> the Bible reenacted in the Peak District. Kind of Charles Causley version of, you know, from Cornwall to that. Anybody who hasn't been to the Peak District, if you are ever in Britain or if you're ever in the Midlands, go to parts of the Peak District. It's for the for the size of um piece of land it covers, which is big, it's a national park, but there's a greater variety of landscape in the Peak District than in any other um national park in the UK I'm aware of, and I've been to nearly all of them. Um so there you go. Um in the bleak midwinter did make me think of fantastic days out in the Peak District, but also there was something about the words. It's There's something um, very melancholy about it, and melancholy is a mood that I'm quite happy to sort of lean into sometimes and then move away from. Um, and I always, as a child, loved stories that were set in snow. End of just that simple so here we go um it's called a christmas carol but um most people who know it know it better as in the bleak midwinter in the bleak midwinter frosty wind made moan earth stood hard as iron water like a stone snow had fallen snow on snow snow on snow in the bleak midwinter long ago our God, heaven cannot hold him, nor earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign. In the bleak midwinter, a stable place sufficed, the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can I give him? I give him... Give my heart. Fair enough. Very nice gift indeed. And a very brilliant poet. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, I um, also had the great good fortune to grow up with um, the Alice books of Lewis Carroll, Charles Lutwidge Dodgson, the uh, mathematical Don. And um, I've, in my life, I've actually although I've learned the lyrics to many songs, and that's fairly easy to do somehow, there are very few poems that I've committed to memory, but this is one of them. I'm nonetheless, just to make sure, going to read it from the sheet, probably. <laughs> so we will just have to trust that you can actually do it. Yeah. But that there is something... Uh, he called these terms portmanteau words, where he would take two words and squash them together. So brillig, for example is boiling time. Uh, slithy is lithe and slimy. And toves is a cross between doves 
and the toads. He had a very strange imagination, mm, quite evident. Fantastic imagination. And there's a beautiful Tennille's illustration to it in, in the book is absolutely wonderful. Um, maybe we'll stick that somewhere. I don't so, think you've said what poem it is. The poem is Jabberwocky. Twas brillig, and the slithy toes did gyre and gimble in the wave. All mimsy were the borogoves, and the mome raths outgrave. Beware the jabberwock, my son, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch. Beware the jub-jub bird, and shun the frumious bandersnatch. He took his vorpal sword in hand, long time the manxome foe he sought. So rested he by the tum-tum tree, and stood a while in thought. And as in uffish thought he stood, the jabberwock with eyes of flame came whiffling through the tulgy wood and burbled as it came. One, two, one, two, and through and through the vorpal blade went snicker-snack. He left it dead, and with its head he went galumphing back. And hast thou slain the jabberwock? Come to my arms, my beamish boy. O oh, frabjous day, kaloo kalay. He chortled in his joy. T'was brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wave. All mimsy were the borogoves, and the mome raths outgrave. I think part of it is, is the way that he invents all of these words. He, yeah. he brings us all of these words and somehow Absolutely. makes this poem. There is actually the first American pressing of the book had groves in it. Mm, I think of it as Borough Groves, mm. that's interesting. And um, I snuck a look. When you said Borough Groves, and I thought, Borough Groves. And I thought, oh, no, it, mm. it's what it says. But, uh, I've actually got into di discussion that there is a, a, somebody who, who calls herself Mimsy Borough Groves. And I've sort of said, no, it's Borogoves, and, and received no response whatsoever. But there you go. <laughs> I, in fact, actually, I remember talking with an American who was most insistent that it was Borogoves, and that was that. Well, if that's, that's the book you've got, that's what you're going to say, isn't it? It's a misprint. It only existed in mm. the first American mm. editions. But... I just want to say one thing about mm. portmanteau words, mm. which is my understanding of a portmanteau word is that, yeah, it's two words put together, but... Um, like handbook, mm. but not invent, <laughs> but not yeah, kind of not in not tapestried, not mm. interwoven. So I'm not. Carol, I'm used, not... Carol uses the term himself when talking about the words. Oh and right, okay. What mean. Oh, that's but, interesting. But... Well, but I that, stand that was the perception in the 18, 1850s, you know, and things yeah. do change. Suitcase, yeah. suit, suitcases and portmanteaus <laughs> have changed their meaning, possibly. Indeed. Um. So, last one from me. Um, I Spike Milligan, um, his poet books of poems were um, part of my childhood, slightly older than the A.A. Milne. Well, um, Book of Millig Animals, I think, came out in about 60. I would have been about five, six, seven when um, I was familiar with those. And... I was trying to think of, there was something called the bald twit lion in there. Um, and I can't find my copy of the book. And um, I thought, actually, what I'm going to do is go for one of his surprising ones. Because Spike Milligan um, was famous as a comedian above all else. Um, although he did do other things. But I remember being really, really surprised 
having um, worked my way through and committed to memory for the time lots of the millig animals, I was surprised round about the age, perhaps 10, to discover a very different thread of poetry that he wrote. Um, and so I'm going to use one of one of those. Um, uh, so Spike Milligan was, I believe he was bipolar. I think that was what he was diagnosed with. Um, and so he had some quite intense emotional experiences. And so as well as having a great sense of humour and being very articulate in that, this is um, a poem called Me. Born screaming small into this world, living I am. Occupational therapy, twixt birth and death. What was I before? What will I be next? What am I now? Cruel answer carried in the jesting mind of a careless god. I will not bend and grovel when I die. If he says my sin's a myriad, I will ask why he made me so imperfect. And he will say, my chisels were blunt. I will say, then why did you make so many of me? And I, I loved that when I read off. Oh, wow! After all my A.A. Milne and Millig animals and all the kind of... Um, this was the first example that I remember of something that was really quite, you know, in, really expressed something so much more brutal and harsh and bitter and angry, but thoroughly understandable and human that, that I could relate to as well. Very interesting. Um, Jonathan Miller said uh, that Spike Milligan should be regarded as one of the great artists of the 20th century, mm. not simply a comedian or a poet, but an artist in the same way that Matisse is thought of as a great artist. And I tend to agree that, you know, looking at, say, his novel Pacoon, which I think is a, is a splendid piece of work, but the humour itself, the absurdism with the goons, he changed, um, particularly the way British people think about comedy. I'm not sure how much of it's penetrated to the rest mm, of the world. Yeah, yeah. But... Um, you know, he gave us the famous uh, expression, he's fallen in the water. Mm. Um, it reminds me of um, William Blake, the angel who presided over my birth, said little creature formed mm. of joy and mirth, go love without the help of anything on earth. You know, miserable mm. poems about being born. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so we're going to finish with, um, when I was uh, 11 years old, uh, a, a man called Jimi Hendrix, uh, his revised birth certificate, uh, says uh, James Marshall Hendrix, uh, his father renamed him, um, and he changed the spelling of his name to J-I-M-I -I on the plane over to England uh, on the last day of September 1966. And so I was 11 years old and suddenly there's this astonishing character on our TV screens and he has a quick succession of, of hit records, um, starting with Hey Joe, which he didn't write, but then Purple Haze, which he did, and the third was The Wind Cries Mary. And um, I've read different things about it. I've written a novel which has Jimi Hendrix as a character, so I spent a couple of years reading everything I could and listening to everything I could to absorb him as a, a character, as a human being. Um, he, for a couple of years, actually shared a flat in London um, which had um, um, been inhabited by the composer Handel. 
before, and he swore that he had met the ghost of Handel there. He shared this with, with a woman called um, Kathy Mary Etchingham, and she later wrote a, an excellent book um, called Gypsy Eyes, which is one of the songs that he wrote about her. One night they had a furious argument, and um, he, according to, to Kathy Etchingham, he really didn't like lumpy mashed potato and he got quite furious about it oh you can see why it got so vicious and and, <laughs> and she says that the plates were thrown around and that she ran out and when she came back the next day he'd written this song and um about her which is she says incredibly flattering well there's another, another note about that that um he knew that she didn't like to be called mary her middle name. She liked to be called Kathy, and so there's the idea that there's still this little element of annoyance <laughs> in the song. Um, the, the tune itself had been written earlier. Um, it was recorded in a single take. The version that you hear is the first time that they ever played this song together, the Jimi Hendrix experience. They did later takes, but they didn't feel it had the same strength. On a musical note, it has a coda at the end, a set of guitar phrases that complete the song, which you know could very well be the cool guitar player Wes Montgomery. They're so gentle, they're these incredibly jazzy things from this guy that we think of as this loud, raucous, mm -hmm. you know, purple haze sort of chap, a brilliant man. So um, it, um, it it says here, Rolling Stone magazine ranked The Wind Cries Mary number 379 on its list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. Well, there you go. Well done, Jimmy. <clears throat> the Wind Cries Mary. After all, the jacks are in their boxers and the clowns have all gone to bed. You can hear happiness staggering on down the street. Footprints dressed in red, and the wind whispers, Mary. A broom is drearily sweeping up the broken pieces of yesterday's life. Somewhere a queen is weeping. Somewhere a king has no wife. And the wind, it cries, Mary. The traffic lights, they turn blue tomorrow and shine their emptiness down on my bed. The tiny island sags downstream because the life that lived is dead. And the wind screams, Mary. Will the wind ever remember the names it has blown in the past? And with its crutch, its old age and its wisdom, it whispers, no, this will be the last. And the wind cries, Mary. It's fantastic. Mm. It's absolutely fantastic, isn't it? Um, and it's interesting to note that, that while he'd written a few tunes, it was only when his manager, Chaz Chandler, the former bass player with the Animals, said, um, you've got to actually write things yourself if you're going to make money in the business. Mm. So when he put Hey Joe out, he wanted to put a cover of Land of a Thousand Dancers on the flip side. And Chandler insisted, it said, doesn't matter how bad the song is, you'll still get 50% of the royalties from sale mm. because it's on the other side. Mm. And that triggered Hendrix into writing some of the most remarkable songs of the period. Mm. So um, get your confidence together and write stuff, basically. <laughs> 
that's the thing. Yeah. So, um, and I, th- I think for people who are interested in poetry and writing their own stuff, I think thinking back to where your interest started from is is of real value. And it's also, it's, it's just a lovely thing to do. Um, I started, I did it, for, I went through a phase of doing it about a year ago. And I, I went and found the books that I didn't have anymore. I went and, and sort of found little secondhand copies of and um, from people like A Books and all sorts of other places. And it's a, a really lovely thing. And you, you build up um, an idea of when you can return to what it was that got you into words in the first place, you've got a starting point for what you might want to do with them now. That's what I would say. And it, it, it kind of informs that you've got that echo. And it's fascinating. I, I too, over the years, have um, collected books that I had and music that I had as, as a, a young person. And so at school, uh, there was an anthology called Voices. I went and found that. Oh, yeah. And there's another called Seven Themes in Modern Vo- in Modern Verse, Seven Themes in Modern Verse, um, which we will uh, will come to Louis McNeese's Prayer Before Birth mm. at some point mm. from from there. But it's true that that um, by remembering, by recollecting, recollecting, bringing back these things, it can inspire you to do something. I'd also say that um, if I want to write, and I've written a great deal in all sorts of forms and genres, that I will um, fill myself up with that particular kind of writing. Mm. So if I want mm. to be writing poetry, then I'll read poetry. If I, if, I wanted, if I wanted to write a science fiction novel, I would read science fiction. Mm. That, yeah. And it just helps to generate um, you know, your own expression by filling your imagination up, I find. Yeah, you can only swim when you're in the water. Mm. Yeah. You can only walk when you're oh, on land, or the, preferably the Peak District. Yes, and uh, it's going to be very crowded, though, of course, because all the people who watch this now go. So, like those lovely travel programs about really exotic, isolated places. Yeah. That when you go there, everybody else who watches the TV shows there too. Well, frankly, if 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 I manage to fill up the Peak District by the by talking about it, I'll be well chuffed. Yeah. Yeah, and we'll be going to another place, but we're not telling you where it is. So thank you very much for sharing your time with us. I'm John Atak. I'm Ursula Wake. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.